The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. Well, if you would remain standing with me and turn in your copies of God's Word to Daniel chapter 3. We were in Daniel 1 last week, you'll probably remember. This is the sixth of our seven-part series, Crisis and the Christian in Biblical Perspective. We come to a very familiar text today, Daniel chapter 3, and I want you to follow along with me. Now, let me go ahead and warn you, I'm going to read the entire uh, chapter because this, that's the way this chapter is written. It is intentionally written with insights, repetition, and all of that in order to communicate something to you as it is read as a whole. So I want you to be ready to do that with me in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 Cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, 
Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who shook, who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then... King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not throw, did we not, um, I'm sorry, let me go back, um, that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then King Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that their, that their fire, that the fire had, had not had any power over the bodies of these young men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in its ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever by his grace and mercy. May his word be preached for you. Please be seated.
The place was Dunkirk. It was the very outset of what we would know as World War II now. Almost the entire British Army had been put into a bottleneck at Dunkirk on the French coastline, surrounded by the blitzkrieg of the German army and about to be utterly destroyed. And they were implored by the Prime Minister Winston Churchill, the other officials of Britain, the army commanders, they were implored, please hold on. Can you hold on? They sent back a message that they would hold on. And that message ended with an open sentence and three words. We will make every effort to hold on to the last man. But if not. And in those days of biblical literacy, everyone knew they were quoting from this text. They were waiting for deliverance to come across the English Channel, and they were going to hold on for that deliverance. But if the deliverance did not come, they would still hold on. That was their message. This is one of those texts that when we read it, uh, I know I read its entirety and that may be a little bit of a challenge for you, but you've really got to read it that way. Now, you're about to find out why you really got to read it that way, because in it is another of these crises. And that's what we've made is a case study of crisis. Don't you love? At least I do. I love the clarity, the integrity, the astonishing clarity and challenging nature of Biblical Christianity, not necessarily contemporary Christianity that is adulterated by so many things from this from the spirit of the age that creeps into the pulpits that preach the word of God. But when you preach the word of God with clarity, expositionally, passage after passage, it is astonishing clear if you're honest with the text. And one of the most astonishing has been working behind this series of seven sermons. We're on the sixth one now that I've been walking us through in this present distress. And that present distress attempting to understand crisis and the Christian in biblical perspective. And that passage that's looming in the background is that James 1 text. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. Now, notice that it's astonishing. Notice it doesn't say if. It doesn't say if you believe Jesus enough, you're not going to have any tests or crises in the broken world. No, that's not what it says. It says that when. It doesn't say if. It says when you encounter the trials, the crisis that become tests in your life. That you are not only know it's coming, but you are to count it all joy, not necessarily because of the trial, but because of something the text says, you know, you know that God is doing something. That's why we have laid out five lessons thus far. 
Lesson number one was an overview that the present age has present distresses to it. It has crisis. Therefore, we're to live sensibly, righteously and godly in this present age. Prudence without panic. Trusting God without tempting God. Fearlessly because of the faithfulness of God to his word and to his people. And then we said, now, what's the second thing? Well, we went to Genesis 50. We found out that God, God's providence is never singular. It's multifaceted. God is multitasking in the midst of every crisis. Number three, we find out the third thing that we find out from Jesus himself, that every catastrophe, every crisis in this world contains a, 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 a fervent and um, unmistakable message. It's calling us. To repent or to perish from our sins. That's what he is calling us to do. Even as every particular, even as every crisis calls us to fervent prayer. Fervent prayer, a fervent message, repent or perish. That uh, we are to live sensibly, righteously and godly. God is sovereign. He's multi-purpose, multitasking. And then last week we found out that the real crisis in a crisis is how do you respond to the crisis? And the way you respond to the crisis is directly related to who actually is your king. What we found out in Daniel chapter 1 is that here, I mean, how would you like to just wake up one morning? Uh, here you are in a privileged class. You've got your teachers. You've got your family. You've got your, uh, you've got your small group Bible study. You've got, um, you're on a fast track to position and acclaim uh, there in Jerusalem. You're right in the middle of Jerusalem. There you can see this magnificent temple every single day. And in 605, one morning, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar sweeps in and sweeps you up and takes you along with thousands of others into a Babylonian captivity. He won't stop there. He'll come back again in 597. He'll come back again in 586. And he'll keep taking them, he'll keep taking in the, under the hand of God's providential discipline. He is disciplining his covenant people as he takes them into the Babylonian captivity. And all of a sudden, here you are a teenager, 14, 15 years old at the most. And here you are now, you've been given another name, a Babylonian name containing reference to a pagan god. You've been put into a Babylonian school. You've been isolated. You are being educated. You are being indoctrinated all of that is taking place what will you do and there is no family to appeal to there is no teacher to go to there is no one there but what has already been put into your life well they learned how to cooperate without compromising and the way they cooperated without compromises they knew where the line was and there in Daniel 1 Daniel said, Daniel knew where the line was to be, and he led Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in honoring that line. And it's indicated by that constant repetition. Remember, the king's table, the king's food, the king's wine, the king's diet, the king. And in other words, all of this is happening, but there is no free lunch. There is no free lunch. I will not be dependent upon this king. I've got a greater king. And it is there. That's why that repetition is there. The king's table, the king. Time, time and seven times it's there to unmistakably tell you what was the issue. 
And Daniel knew where the crisis was. The crisis is really not the crisis, but how you respond to the crisis. And the way you respond to the crisis is ultimately who is your king and savior. Well, by the way, it didn't stop there. It went on to Daniel 2. Well, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not only stood the crisis because of God's faithfulness, they got hired. They got put way up into the category of counselors and um, uh, and uh, part of the court of King Nebuchadnezzar, arguably the most powerful king that's ever lived. And I think it's clearly true. He's a brilliant man, militarily, economically, a pagan man, brilliant, powerful No one would stand against him. And so when he promoted you, you really got promoted. And then all of a sudden, the next chapter, he's got this dream and nobody wants to step up to tell him what the dream means. And he finds out that Daniel has by God given gift concerning the interpretation of these dreams. So he calls on Daniel and Daniel very graciously, but very pointedly told him about this, this four part image that he dreamed of. He said, here's the good news, king. You're the head. That golden head, that's you. But let me tell you, that second image is the next empire that's going to defeat you. It's the Medo-Persian. And the next one is the empire that's going to defeat them. And that is the, um, that'll be the Greek, Grecian empire. Then the next one is the one that's going to defeat them. And that's the Roman empire. And he had the courage to tell him what the dream was. And he was so impressed by him that he made, he basically promoted Daniel as head over everything. We have fast forwarded, fast forwarded through these two events, probably about 16 to 18 years. We are close to all of the invasions of Jerusalem have been completed. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel have been made leaders in the court of the king. Daniel has been put over everything. And what Nebuchadnezzar decides to do is, I am not going to hear the dream of the sovereign God of history. You know, that's what prophecy is. This dream is a prophecy. That there's a Babylonian empire is going to be succeeded by a Medo-Persian empire is going to be succeeded by a Grecian empire is going to be succeeded by a Roman empire. What does God say? Well, prophecy is nothing more than pre-written history. It's the God of history telling you before it occurs what the historical facts are going to be. But Nebuchadnezzar decides this, this God is not going to be sovereign over me. I'll take the top of that that image that I dreamed of and I'll make it the image. Nothing is going to topple me. So in Daniel chapter three, he made himself an image and he set it up. He set it up in the plain of Dura. Now, likely it was a platform. By the way, uh, archaeologists have uncovered in the place that would be the plain of Dura. They have uncovered a large platform that likely was tall upon which this image was put. This is the image that what the, the, the measurements you're given is the image that was put up likely on a platform. And the image was uh, about eight feet wide and, and um, interestingly, approximately 90 feet high. All of gold. All of Nebuchadnezzar setting it up. And then Nebuchadnezzar has a dedication service for this new God that everyone is to worship. And like all idolatry, the God is there that we set up to worship. Because we're the ones that set it up. And what we're really worshiping is ourselves. 
to worship the image was to worship Nebuchadnezzar. And so he decides that he is going to call everybody together. Now, I know that I know that when I read this, not only did you note the repetition, I tried to read it so that you would note the repetition. And in fact, the repetition rapidly ascended or descended, whichever way you're thinking about it, into redundancy. I mean, how many times did you have to repeat that? Well, clearly, you don't have to repeat it. Unless you're trying to what? Emphasize it. This is a biblical device for emphasis. Always be on the alert for it. The Bible only has, God has only ordained the Bible to be a certain size. And when that certain size is filled up with things that are repeated, that's telling you something is important. And there are four repetitions in this text. Don't miss them. The first repetition is the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is the one that put all of this into motion. Did you see it? Nebuchadnezzar made the image. Nebuchadnezzar set up the image. Nebuchadnezzar gathered the people to worship with the command that everybody, everyone is to come and to worship. There's your repetition. Twelve times Nebuchadnezzar made, gathered, or set up. That image that was there. This is about Nebuchadnezzar declaring his sovereignty over all of the gods of the age. And that would include the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that he is God over all. That is his claim. And he is now calling everyone to bow and worship. The second repetition was the repetition of Every tribe, every nation, every, everywhere where they had control, which was extensive. He called all of them. No one is to be found, uh, is to be found absent. Everyone is to be here and to worship. And all of the peoples, all of the nations, all of the clans, all of the families were to be represented. Must have been quite the processional. Thirdly, every position. Did you see the repetition? Magistrates, heads of provinces, satraps, counselors, everybody, every, no one, every position, every person was to be there to worship. There's three repetitions. Nebuchadnezzar's centrality. Secondly, everyone is to bow and worship. No exceptions. Thirdly, every position in the, in the empire is represented. Fourthly, fourthly, Every instrument is being used in the processional of praise. I mean, can you imagine? They even sequestered a bagpipe. I cannot believe a bagpipe would be used for such an ungodly enterprise. But they got all of them together and they brought it all together for the purpose of worshiping. But there was three that were absent. Now, Daniel's absent. Daniel's absent because he, you're, you're told back at the end of chapter 2, he was back at the king's court. He wasn't there. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are now on their own. Daniel's back at the king's court. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there. But they're not there to worship. And there were some of the Chaldeans that were keeping their eye 
And they maliciously reported. In other words, they were looking at them and were watching what they would do. Now, you can realize with the events that have already occurred, these three, these, these, um, these four youths, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, now probably in their late 20s, they, they are very clearly establishing a reputation and all the eyes are upon them. How will you live? And what will you do now? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and by the way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, your inside guy isn't here, Daniel. What will you do without Daniel? Well, very humbly, but very boldly, they weren't going to worship. And the report went to the king with a little jab. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego whom you appointed are not here to worship the image you made up and you have given a twofold command. You either come and bow down in worship and adoration or you'll be burned. If you don't bow down, you'll be burned up in a death by cremation. And they're not here. So King Nebuchadnezzar calls them. King Nebuchadnezzar is going to ask two very important questions. Don't miss them. Here is question number one. What God is there to deliver you from my hand? What God is there out there that can deliver you from my hand? Now, you can understand what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have done. They've also got this line. It's called the law of God. And in the law of God is the second commandment of the law of God. You shall not make for yourself any graven images and you shall not bow down to them. And so what do they say? Oh, king, we have no need to answer you to you. Why? Well, they've already answered to the Lord. Lord, we're going to be faithful to you. This is just a simple. This is Paul. This is Paul. They're ready to suffer for Christ's sake. This is Peter and John. We must obey God rather than man. This is the truth of Scripture. This is Peter. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is about to come upon you. Be ready to give an account of the hope that's within you. This is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. Out of love to the God who has promised to be their king and their savior, they will depend upon him and they will not serve any other king and they will not bow down and they will not break God's law, which teaches them how to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind and how to rightly love their neighbor as their self. We will not bow down. So with that unflinching faithfulness, he then says to them, with filled with rage, his countenance changed, no more, no longer the benevolent look upon these three. No longer the patron of these three. Now he becomes the adversary. 
And he commands them to be put into this fiery furnace. He commands it to be heated up seven times. That's the perfect number. That means the ultimate temperature It's heated up seven times. And as it's heated up seven times, uh, as it's heated up seven times, he then gets men to make sure they can carry it out from the army. They take them. They bind them. They put all the clothes on them. They're just going to hear some more stuff that can burn. They got a hat. They got their tunic. They got their clothes. They're bound up. And then the three are cast into the fire and the fire is so hot it burns up those who and and, uh, burns up those who are throwing them into the fire. King Nebuchadnezzar, as he begins to stop and think, begins to want to know what about them. And he comes to this open furnace and he looks in and he doesn't see three bound. He sees four Unbound, walking around, untouched by the flame. And the fourth one is like like unto the Son of God. He then has them extracted. And everyone notes, I mean, you've been out for a cookout, haven't you? You ever smelled your clothes the next morning? No odor, no smell. No singe. When God delivers, he delivers. And then he is overwhelmed by it. <laughs> and he hadn't got it. How do you know he hadn't got it? Well, notice he doesn't, doesn't repent. There's nothing here about tearing the image down. He hasn't got it. He's drawn to it. He was drawn to it in chapter 1. He was drawn to it in chapter 2. He's being drawn to it again. By the way, we're not going to be there. In chapter 4, he's going to get converted. He's on the journey to conversion. But here, he is being witnessed to by Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as the witness is put before him, and this unflinching testimony that's there... The man who asked the question, what God is there to deliver you from my hand? Now ask another question. What kind of God delivers like this? There is no God I know that delivers like this. And what does he mean like this? Well, brothers and sisters, there's a couple of takeaways I want you to see in this text. And I don't want you to miss them. I want you to see it. But before I get to it, I want to maybe just say this to you. Note the careful way his first question was answered. What God is there who can deliver you from my hand? King, here's what we want you to know. Our God is able to deliver us from the fire. Notice, they did not say our God will deliver us from the fire. There's no promise in the Bible for that. There have been many believers that have been burned up in fire. But he's able to deliver us from the fire. Then note their next statement. But he will deliver us from you. The hand of a false god cannot 
hold us. The power of the flesh cannot keep us. As Matthew Henry says, here's what they knew. O king, your supreme weapon is death. Our supreme weapon is dying. To live is Christ, and to die is gain, whether by death or by life. Your supreme weapon is a gift to us for ours. For we live unto Christ, we die unto Christ, because our life is not you, O King, not your table, not your God. Not the position you promoted us to. Our life is the Lord. He is our life. He is the redeemer of our life. So here's your takeaway. The Christ exalting faithfulness of God's people to the faithfulness of God's grace in the day of crisis not only establishes a witness to God, it also multiplies witnesses for God. Willing witnesses and unwilling witnesses. You do know that, don't you? Can I just mention something to you? If you fly the flag for Jesus, which is what you're called to do, if you confess Jesus, if you live unto Christ, let me assure you, people have their eye on you. You are a witness. If you're a professing believer, today you're a witness. Now, you may be a good witness, you may be a bad witness, but you're a witness. People are taking ideas about God by looking at the way you're living. And in the midst of a crisis, all eyes look at professing believers. In the midst of a crisis, all eyes are looking upon professing believers. But they're not all looking for the same reason. Some are curious, like Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar right now is being charmed. He has not yet been converted. He is being drawn, attracted, but he's not yet changed. Then there were others. Their eyes were upon out of jealousy and envy and maliciousness. And here is this gathering of this, here is this processional with all of the satraps, magistrates, counselors, heads of the provinces, all of the, the trignon, the trignon, the harp, the lyre, the bagpipe. Here's all the instruments. Here's all the people. Here's all the positions. They're a processional of idolatrous worship and it becomes a parade of witnesses to the power of God. Notice every one of them are repeated at the end of the chapter as witnesses to what God had done in his faithfulness to the faithfulness of his people. All the eyes were upon them, not for not for benevolent reasons necessarily. But what they saw was the faithfulness of God that enabled the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and affirmed the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And that, that's no small deal, folks. No small deal, brothers and sisters. I mean, what would you have done? But let me put you there. You're going to get burned. Up. You're going to die by cremation if you don't bow down and worship. What would you have done? 
Would you have said, hey, Daniel's not here. We can get away with this. Let's just, we'll do it one time. And by the way, there's no such thing as a real idol anyway. So there's no, there's no, there, all these gods are false gods. Idols are false gods. Would you, like I might have been drawn to, is to rationalize? Well, only once. Nobody's looking. Daniel's not here. They said, no, we cooperate, but we do not compromise. So we will be burned up in cremation rather than fall down in adoration to these idols. And the result is the parade of idolaters become a processional of witnesses to a God who is able to save from the fire, but always saves through the fire. Always delivers us. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego take their place. They'll be followed by Luther. Here I stand. I can do no other. They'll be followed by Latimer and Ridley. Today we shall light a candle. As we're burned alive, we shall light a candle that shall not be put out in all of England. They joined the faithful who reflect the faithfulness of God, who bear the faithfulness of God. That's who they reflect and that's who they bear witness of. All because of their God. What kind of a God saves like this? Nebuchadnezzar had read the stories of gods who, who would wipe out fiery furnaces. He had never seen the God who would go into the furnace to save his people. As Jesus went into hell itself on the cross to save us from that fiery furnace and deliver us from the hand of sin and Satan and death and the world. I've got an appointment. You've got it. It's appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. Don't worry. That's a great moment. It's a moment of anticipation, not trepidation. Why? Those two appointments you'll keep with a blessed hope because Jesus kept the appointment for you and your judgment and your hell at the cross. Therefore, we live. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the moments we could be together in your word. Thank you for the privilege to know the glory of our God. Who at appointed times delivers from the fire. Who all the time delivers through the fire because of Christ who took our judgment and will bring us home through the shadow of death. We give you praise for the Savior who enables us to be faithful in a moment of crisis. And in that moment, 
uses our witness to create multitudes of witnesses, some willing, some unwilling, some on the road to conversion as they see your faithfulness in us and to us, such as Nebuchadnezzar. Some who mock, but one day will have to praise you. But we today will praise you. Great is your faithfulness. O God of glory, we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.